All right. Hello and welcome back to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello there. How's it going, everyone? Marcelo. Hey, everyone. And Austin. Hey, everybody. And today we're going to be discussing vaccine passports. Before we begin, we have an announcement. Between the Lawyers has been doing a little bit of networking, and we will start doing some collaborations. This Friday, I'll be skipping on over to Taboo Topic, hosted by Ken Drew, for his Week in Review. And he and I will be having a discussion over some current news. So catch me on over there on Friday. That is Taboo Topic, hosted by Ken Drew. I will pass the mic off over to Marcelo to give us a brief overview. Yep. So for vaccine passports, we're talking anything and everything that has to do with mandating vaccination, the COVID-19 vaccine for not just travel, but we're going to talk about places. So like, do you need a vaccine to go to work? Do you need a vaccine to go to a concert, to the gym, to school? Um, Obviously, travel is included in that. You need a vaccine to travel. So we'll talk about which states have imposed mandates for or against the these vaccine passports and what do we think are some pros and cons of, of the whole thing. Uh, Josh, do you have anything to add at the start here? Yeah, it's looking at targeting how people can get around and what they can access. And I also would say that there's a lot of precedent for this being done in the past. So I would I always, you know, um, as I always like to bring into the history, into a conversation, like whether it has been times where we've had other um, epidemics here in America, different poxes or different other illnesses or polio, the government has been very heavy handed at times with getting the, the um, uh, population vaccinated. And it's a public health concern. It's a financial concern. Um, it's an economic concern. And the United States government always wants the United States population at full fit working force at all times. Um, that's good public policy. That's good economic policy. At the time of recording, we're recording this. The FDA has not authorized the vaccine fully, but it will be authorized by about um, the day after or about two or three days after we record this. So I think once that change happens, and so when you're listening to this, dear audience, um, you'll see a lot more heavy handedness come from the government once we have the full clearance from the medical professionals that are guiding how we authorize the, you know, the vaccine and how we make sure it's safe for the public. And to add to that, uh, the FDA has approved it up until the point of us recording this for emergency use, which means there's severe restrictions, meaning general population has been able to get it as long as they were above a certain age. I think it was eight years old. Is that correct? 12 years old? I think it's 12 right now. 12 years old. And so if you are only approved for emergency use, then they're going to have those restrictions. Children, um, as of today, we're not able to get it. And then Austin is here. Happy to be here. So Austin, what do you have (laughs) to add to kick us off? Yeah, just to start out, I'm sure we've all We've all been hearing in the news and everything else. There's been quite a bit of talk about vaccine hesitancy. Um, this It's news to me to hear that the FDA will be fully approving it in the next few days. That's good to hear. Yeah, we'll see what kind of effect that has on numbers and vaccination statistics and all that. But I think that getting the typical clearance that is given to other vaccines that weren't rolled out quite as quickly, um, given our unprecedented circumstances, I think that might affect vaccine hesitancy. We'll see. That'd be good. All right. Why don't we start with uh, the states that have been preemptively rolling out legislation against the mandating of either masks or vaccines within their states. Right now, I see that it's Texas, Florida and Arizona. They've been kind of circulating the news as far as, uh, let's see, Florida. Ron DeSantis has been engaging both President Biden as well as the media as he came under fire for uh, mandating that schools were not allowed to mandate masks. Marcelo, 
do you or Josh or Austin, what is the latest in Texas and Arizona? I know part of Texas uh, was kind of stepping back, backpedaling a little bit, but what's the state at large looking at right now? So I would say that, uh, and this is coming from uh, an MIT, uh, the technology review uh, source, Um, they did a study uh, comparing all of the vaccine credential mandates that are happening across the US, that is the 50 states. Um, And what they found was that in about 13 to uh, 15 states, there have already been certain bans on vaccine credentials. Vaccine passports have only really just been approved in in three states that we can see in New York, Louisiana, and California, and many others. Like I said, between uh, 13 and 15, there is vaccine bans that that is like specific institutions cannot require people to be vaccinated uh, to access those services. So. I would say that from 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 this perspective is that we're not we're seeing some sort of like active efforts by some states to require vaccines, but a lot more from states to say like, hey, you know, you can require people to have their vaccine as of now. I think a lot of the a lot a lot of a lot of the debate happening in the states is who has the authority to um, require a vaccine. So, like in all of these Republican states that are reeling at the idea of the schools requiring a vaccine, or even the schools requiring a mask, have little to say about employers doing that. And earnestly, in these conservative states, they're mostly right-to-work states. And yeah, your employer can say get the vaccine or you're fired. That's 100% legal. Your employer can fire you for any reason that's not a federally protected class. That is what right-to-work ends up being. So. Um, bosses and you know corporations can require it but they get you know more sensitive over and how the conservatives argue it is that it looks at like this parental authority parental autonomy and what choices um do the parents have and at some degree you know i think it's recognizing that you know it's not infringing on parental autonomy you can choose for your child not to get the vaccine you can choose for your child not to go to the public school system just like you can still choose you know that's an option that existed before um covid-19 with um the mmr vaccines and other vaccines that are already required for your child to be enrolled in the public school system we'll debate this later but austin if you were to say what the ideological divide is for better or for worse we'll get into the reasons for that later but we've got red states and blue states what are the general if we were to stereotype red, blue, left, right, what are their general tendencies for thoughts on government or maybe the vaccine or mandation, things like that? I think Josh hit the nail on the head as far as the concept between who has the authority and the right to say whether or not you're, you're going to get the vaccine. I think um, from what I've seen and what it seems like and what makes sense just to generalize these two different camps, it does seem like as with most things, the conservatives want to pull that choice a little bit closer to the individual, a little closer to the local level, a little closer to the place of employment. And it seems that like a lot of the left don't mind the option being pulled a little bit closer to the top, a little bit more in the authority figures that would be able to centralize this from the top. I think there's merits to both sides, whether you're discussing from a right standpoint or from a pragmatic standpoint. But I guess that's that's most of what we'll get into here, here today. Let's uh, transition briefly and talk about the different levels of implementation. So you've got federal, you've got state, you've got local government, and then you've got businesses, and then you've got, uh, as adjacent to that level, uh, schools, universities, things like that. So different levels. Right now, uh, federal tends to take a little bit more uh, just 
they're, they've been a little bit more reserved, but also a little bit more blanket. So for example, right now, uh, the Biden administration mandated that all airports, if you're going to travel through there, you have to be wearing a mask. Even when we were at a point where we had fewer cases, fewer transmissions, they were still there before the Delta outbreak came. That's what their rule was federally. I haven't seen a mask mandate return to federal buildings yet, like post offices. I don't know for certain on legislative places like Congress and things like that, but uh, that's the federal level. At the federal level, you also have to consider that Biden, where he can uh, hit, he has hit harder in the sense that federal employees are required to have the vaccine because the the employer is the state. And he has said, well, if you want to keep working for the federal government, I give you till October, sometime in October to get the vaccine um, if you want to keep working. I I feel like, personally, I feel like that's an excellent um, idea. And it's a start because while I would like everyone vaccinated, federal employees are a big part of the country uh, and they work heavily in infrastructure and, and public services. So if they can be required to be vaccinated, then all the better. And one of the other moves we've seen from the Biden administration is they've been placing um, leverage on nursing homes that receive federal funding, basically saying as a part of a contingency on your federal funding, you know, you need to make sure your uh, employees are vaccinated, to which that makes sense to me when you're working with like the most at risk population for this virus. You figure like you would do that for your customers and the people in your care anyways. But, you know, some some people are just people, you know, Uh, wild ones out there. Um, And I think the other thing, you know, we've seen with like the federal employees, we saw um, that they required it for the military. Um, If anyone's been close to a military base, you know, one of the first things they do is pump you full of a ton of medicine. The first thing you do and arrive and they pump you full of a ton more medicine when you go overseas. And it's a, it's a national defense question. Like we can't have our military be sick. That's that, you know, if our military is sick and can't fight, they're not, they can, they're not able to do their jobs. And so it was very much so uh, readiness as what the Joint Chief of Staff called it. It was a readiness concern of the capabilities of our armed forces. And I think that applies to all of our governments. So like we need, if our, gov- our governments need to keep working, like that's what we pay them to do. I think giving the federal employees until October to get the vaccine, I think that's fair if we're going to view the federal government as the employer in that case. I think that's fair for them to require that. The real question in my mind would be, and I'm not sure I haven't, um, I'm not sure is the state of this as far as the federal government employees being mandated to get the vaccine. Is there a medical exemption in the case? I know it is somewhat slim in some cases, but there are cases in which if you were talking to your doctor, they would not recommend you the vaccine, such as if you're suffering from MS, if you have a history of cancer, if you have any sort of um, condition in which you are, you know, Compromise. I'm curious how much nuance there is in some of these declarations that are being put out. That's, I don't know, that's the first place that my mind goes. As far as if you could have a conversation with your doctor and they recommend you get the vaccine, perfect. That's great. Um, the question in my mind, though, is with these federal mandates, would there be enough nuance there to allow for people that their doctor may not recommend them to get the vaccine? Would there be allowances for that? That's the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm also interested in the fact that the note here earlier was that nursing homes receiving federal funds, right? Therefore, there's a tie to the federal government. Therefore, they can have a say. We're not seeing that same level of implementation for universities that are receiving federal funding, to my knowledge, at this point. As of right now, uh, today, uh, when we're recording on August 21st, we're seeing that we're coming up on the school year starting tomorrow uh, for or if, if you haven't already started and that is left started to, Thursday. Okay. So some are already in and you're seeing that some of these schools are relying on their local epidemiologist that goes along with the university or the dean has to make those mandates or the president, somebody higher, higher up, or they're leaving it up to the level of the university. And these are, or to the, the level of the professors in the classroom to recommend some of these instructors have their hands tied, uh, depending on the state that they're in. I know that, uh, 
uh, Oklahoma is not allowing professors to mandate masks. They can only strongly recommend in the classroom and that's it. So even universities who are receiving federal aid at this point are not, I'm not sure if they're not able to mandate this or if they're just not doing that. I know part of it is that they're not able to, because I know in Texas, because we were looking at um, a college in Texas's uh, COVID policy, because there's a chance that we're going to be traveling there here shortly. And yeah, they are not allowed by their state legislator to require masks on their or on their uh, campus. And so at some at some level, they would be in this legislative double bind if the federal government came in and said, "Hey, do this." But at the end of the day, then they have their state legislators from and for most you know universities who provide a majority of their funds and not the federal government are the ones saying, you know, you got to do this. And so they get pulled in two different directions. And I imagine there's probably a hesitancy of by the federal government not to put the universities in that position of like picking between which you know government entity is giving them their money. That'd be a tough spot to be in as an administrator. Why don't we move over towards the state and local governments? Marcella, what are your thoughts on those areas? So in terms of state, and, and I think Josh touched on this a little bit, is that we're seeing a lot of more of that movement of trying to withhold funding, trying to uh, allow funding for different institutions if they allow or not allow uh, vaccines. In the case of, for example, you can say uh, New York and California, you have vaccine mandates for their state employees, uh, but also you are strongly encouraged as a business to also require the vaccines themselves. On the other hand, in Florida, there's a few cases where uh, not only schools, but also uh, some um, some other institutions are being required to not require vaccines, a, a little bit of a contradiction, but uh, they they cannot require vaccines uh, less, uh, less they'll lose their funding. So I honestly, I have mixed feelings on this because obviously there are states, they can do whatever they want supposedly, but I don't really know how I feel about like the idea of like withholding funding from an institution for not doing what, what I want, because I can see how it, it can be used to, to benefit my perspective, which is requiring vaccines, but also a detriment because now you have schools that actively don't require masks or vaccines for fear of losing their money. I know New York City, um, under Bill de Blasio right now, who is the mayor there, is requiring businesses to have a vaccine passport. I see here that it's also marked that they can have a negative COVID test. I think that that's a, a nice choice that you're giving the individuals at that level, because if they don't have the vaccine, then that's fine. That's their personal decision. But then they have to be able to show that they weren't uh, testing positive recently. We've been seeing a lot of this um, for concerts and for plays or like the theater and Broadway and things like that is you have to show one or the other. That's your choice. But you have to show one of these two options in order to gain access, which I think is important when you start getting into the more packed areas, baseball games, uh, theaters, things that we want to do and, you know, we we're hoping to be able to participate in, but you've also got a higher risk of transmission because there's more people. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to how much safety we want in the public. You know, when we look at the COVID-19 statistics and we've gotten better at treating it as, the, as we've gone on and we've developed, you know, better and found better antivirals to help deal and reduce the symptoms of people who do get it. And so that on top of a lot of people being vaccinated, the overall death rate has gone down. And so there's that desire to provide options for people to feel safe 
and they don't have to worry about that going back out to these play and big theaters of like having that return to normal. And part of, you know, of that, because as we talked about, you know, the immunocompromised people who can't get the vaccine, like we do that so they can return to normal. Because even like, you can know, oh, I can get, you know, my vaccine and it's no longer my problem. Well, there's still a lot of people who this virus, and, and for those immunocompromised people, they have even greater than that base 3% chance of death when they contract this virus. So it is part of like, how do we get our cities working and moving again? Uh, Josh, you mentioned uh, trying to protect those who are immunocompromised or unable to get the vaccine. I think that's an important point that's raised and does transition us over into the businesses, the more a very localized level, because particularly what we're seeing in New York right now is that businesses are not allowing anyone to work for them if they can't show their vaccine passport. Uh, there might be a few businesses here and there who are allowing either employees or guests to be able to wear a mask, but I'm seeing a little bit of a concern here for discrimination against those who are disabled when they can't get the vaccine or the doctor strongly recommends that they don't for whatever their underlying condition might be or their genetic history might be. Now they won't be able to be given service at these places. I think that on the one hand, we're balancing the right of businesses to refuse service based off of you know their business rules. And on the other hand, where does this point reach discrimination? And at what point can we balance that with the benefit for you know at large, the health of people at large? I mean, it, it is, you know, my, my business, my rights, right? I thought that's how it worked. Um, I feel like I'm obviously kidding. Uh, the um, I, th- I think that businesses requiring vaccines is perfectly fine. And obviously, can, I can only speak from personal experience when I say that everywhere that I have seen that requires vaccines, uh, there's a couple of concerts I'm going to in the next few months, um, say that you should present either your vaccine uh, passport or you can show a negative COVID test that says that you've been negative in the last 72 hours. So that's like, again, some flexibility that not only only the workplace is allowing uh, some places uh, like for uh, for example in DC uh, you will have to be fully vaccinated by October or you can just get tested weekly and I feel like that might be a, a good compromise and so I would say at least like for that I don't see that much of the po- I, I see the possibility of discrimination but I think that the pros definitely outweigh the cons. Austin, what do you think the balance is there and what are the potential problems that businesses might be facing on allegations of discrimination? Well, as far as allegation discrimination go, most of the time these days, it seems like an allegation is all it takes to tank a business. <laughs> but um, I think people have the right to refuse to patronize a business that they would you know, think that is discriminating its population. As far as the compromise and like, you know, what the solution is, so to speak, I think Marcelo's right. I agree with him 100%. I think nuance on this issue is going to be a heavy handed crackdown every single time. If there is a heavy handed crackdown for the top to say you must do this or else kind of thing, I think that's going to cause more backlash from normal people that may, may or may not have any specific qualms against the vaccine or against getting vaccinated. But, you know, you tell me that I have to do something. It's like, well, now I'm definitely not doing it. I don't think that's rational in most cases uh, for the most part, but that's just how people work sometimes. I think the idea of having options available, uh, specifically options that protect the public, such as coming in with a negative COVID test or the vaccine, I really think that is the, that's going to be the most balanced way to go. And I think it's going to account for human nature and the fact that we are resistant to being, especially in American culture, being resistant to commands, which has its perks and has its usefulness in some cases. In other cases, when it's not rooted in good reason, when it's not rooted in fact and rational thoughts on a topic, it can be a little bit dangerous. But I think that danger is worth 
curbing some authoritarian tendencies. I think it's worth that in some cases. All in all to say options are a good thing. I think there's a good way to go in the middle for this one. So I agree that options are good and we can have those options for something that's an elective, something we can choose to go to. What about schools, Josh? uh, Where do you want to take us on this school section? Because if you're in K through 12, that's required. Otherwise you get a truancy charge. So what are we going to do in an instance like that? Yeah. So I would have two main thoughts here. One would be like, if we all just go ahead and get the shot, then it's like no longer a problem. It's the only way out of this. Like either everyone gets vaccinated or we all keep getting sick year after year after year. So if we all do get it, the concerns about discrimination against people, you know, who can't get it go away because we no longer have to worry about them. Like we don't have to worry about accidentally giving smallpox or polio to the immunocompromised because it's not a problem anymore. We don't even give the smallpox or the, uh, yeah, the smallpox vaccine anymore because it just doesn't exist anymore. So like we have the scientific power to completely obliterate um, this disease and, you know, kind of make it not a problem through our technology. But when it does come to, you know, our schools, I think in the state of Washington, we saw one of the most far reaching requirements for employees because it went to all the way to public, uh, public, private and charter institutions of requiring their employees to get vaccinated. When it comes to the students, we're only just now seeing some districts start to require it. We, um, there's one district in California that has uh, mandated vaccines for eligible students. So those are 12 or up and who do not have disqualifying medical conditions. And I think once it becomes fully authorized, you'll see that too. Like even in the state of Tennessee, there are um, there is language in the legislative book to say basically that even if you have a religious exemption during an epidemic, if the district mandates the vaccine, you need to get it. And that's on the books in Tennessee right now, because again, we've had problems with epidemics in the past and had to respond to them fairly heavy handed heavy-handedly. So when it comes to the school staff, I think that that's something where the school can actually mandate that they either show, again, the choice between negative COVID test, which is going to get really inconvenient when you have to do this multiple times every single week, or the vaccine, because it is a choice to work in this sector, and the school can choose to employ or not employ you at that point. I would say that for the staff, I would give the right to the schools to choose, are you going to mandate one or the other? You're going to give the options, however they want to go about that. For the kids, I think that we have a little bit more Um, of a tricky situation, given that a good portion of your class can't get the vaccine at this point. Game changer, assuming the FDA winds up approving this for full use here in the near future, fingers crossed on that. I would also think that when it comes to when the states finally start vaccinating it for students, we may not see as far reaching of order. You may only see um, like, hey, you know, we're only requiring this for our public school system. If you want to opt to go to the school with different policies, that's kind of the point of our private and charter schools. And so I could see those schools having, you know, different policies and being able to set their own agendas because they're not controlled by the school boards in the same way the public schools are. So you might see some variants there. And so parents may have the options there. I mean, you can't be like a religious public school. You can be a religious private or charter school. So I think that there might be those options there, you know, if you want to go send your kid to the sick lands, but you know, that's on you. You're the parent, make your own choices, I guess. Uh, Marcella, what are your thoughts on the school districts? Where can we see a mandate? What might be a good course of action going through here? So uh, actually, I will agree and disagree with you at the same time. I feel like you said that, you know, for the workers working, there is a choice. Um, I actually don't think if you're if you have studied to be a teacher, I, I know that, you know, working is a quote unquote a choice. But I, I, I do feel like it is um, if, if you basically prevent yourself from 
getting employed in the public school system, I feel like that, that leaves you with way less options than you would otherwise. Um, so I don't know how much of a choice is that. However, that said, I do would, I would like to see the vaccine passport mandate uh, for both the educators and the children. Um, for the kids, uh, I know it's not... Uh, is, uh, it's not mandatory yet. The FDA approval will have to come soon, hopefully. But when it is approved, if it is approved, I would like to see it everywhere. I think that kids, we know they're like, and forgive me for the term, a little like germ goblins. And I feel like uh, like schools being breeding grounds for for diseases and especially COVID that is very easily transmittable. Um, the quicker we can uh, get those schools COVID free is the better it'll go for the adults back at home. And that would particularly satisfy, I know every one of us, if you're a parent, you're wanting your kids to be able to go back to school. It allows you to go to work. It allows you to actually socialize your child and, you know, get that aspect of beyond education, just the human interaction. Austin, what are your thoughts on this? I could see the mandate being put into effect for a public school system. But like Josh had mentioned, I believe, I don't know how that would apply in private schools and charter school settings. I it just kind of uncharted territory. I'm, I'm not really sure what the law would have to say on that or how they would formulate a law to require those things. I think there's something to be said for having, if we are going to have a compulsory education system in which kids are required by truancy laws, you know, you'll you get a truancy visit from a truancy officer. If you don't go to school, if you're going to require them to be there, there's something to be said about having kids vaccinated in those sorts of settings. We have some requirements on other vaccines, obviously, well, specifically the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines being mRNA based, new technology. A little bit different than the typical attenuated strain vaccines we've done in the past. The Johnson Johnson vaccine is a more traditional attenuated strain, like viral strain vaccine, by the way, for people that are interested. It's a little bit of a different scenario, but again, COVID is a different scenario. I don't know how it would play out. I'm not really sure. Again, easy to see in the public setting, but for private schools and charter schools, uh, you got me on that one. I think a good transition then over to another elective would be the university sector because the universities already, especially if you are a first year who's living in the dorms, they tend to require proof of vaccines for a good number of things because you're going to be living in such close quarters. And unlike K through 12, university is not compulsory. It's going to be more of an elective. Now, is it something that's great and people should do? Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, if vaccines are mandated there, we wouldn't really see a whole lot of a difference than what we already have because you have to show your records to be able to live in the dorms and in many cases even enroll in the university. I'm curious the other's thoughts on this sector. I was required as an international student to get like 15, well, I'm exaggerating, like 10 vaccines when I came to the U.S. Like for things that I, I, I didn't even know existed and were very expensive, mind you, to get uh, back home. And people do it here all the time anyways. Uh, I don't, I'm glad we're separating this into different like areas because I'm all for vaccines uh, in the university. I don't think anybody, I hope nobody has a problem with it. Um, you have a bunch of kids and I'm not that far removed from them, but uh, a bunch of kids living together in like the dorms and everything and going to class together. And, you know, it, it's a lot of people in the same place and also coming from different parts of the country and the world. You have international students, you have people from other states coming into, into the schools. And so you have a really big threat in a way that like you have the possibility of this getting out of control. And I know I got out of control up here at, at my school when I was in school that it only takes a few cases for the whole school to be panicking. So like, what do we do? Do we send all of them home? Possibly with COVID, do we keep them here and get more infected? It's, again, much like the other schools, this is an even, maybe possibly an even bigger 
ground for uh, an, an explosion of infections. Uh, yeah, for me, it's a common sense thing. We require your MMR, um, measles, mumps, and rubella uh, vaccine, your hepatitis C vaccine. Um, depending, some schools will require some certain others. Some schools have been requiring your flu vaccine yearly as well. That's been ongoing. Beyond the fact that they're, you know, even other public institutions by large, like they're still kind of these private optional institutions who are largely autonomous in most of the other things we do um, and get to kind of, you know, make our own rules and self-determine what it, you know, means to be higher education. And I also think it comes down to that same standard of readiness. Like I want to teach classes. If all of my students are sick, guess what I can't do? Teach classes. Like, you know, we want to keep, you know, this ongoing. If we get broiled down of trying to, you know, how do we keep advancing our university, but all of our time gets wasted of how do we deal with the most recent coronavirus outbreak on campus that eats up administrator hours, that meets up meetings that could be developing new student programs or planning new things or innovating different parts of the university. There's a time, labor, and resource cost to consistently dealing with the coronavirus, or you just require all of your students to get the vaccine and call it good. There's a lot of resources to be gained there. I think one of the biggest differences, like um, I think Marcella might have mentioned it first, the fact that it's not compulsory. Go to college, absolutely choice. There's an aspect of choice there that um, should be taken into account. If you have that much of a qualm with getting the vaccine, possibly go online. Like you don't have to be there in person. And the biggest thing, absolutely dorm life. If you're going to be living next to people who are not related to you, if you're getting acclimated to an entirely different set of people, people from different parts of the country, different from part, different parts of the world that you have developed, uh, probably have different you know, immune responses to because you grow up in different areas. Absolutely, you should be getting the vaccine if you're going to expose yourself to that. There's, again, like Josh mentioned, there's a whole litany of vaccines you have to get before you go into um, specifically dorm life on university campuses. Another big thing too is if you get the virus, where are you going to quarantine apart from people? You have a roommate, you have hallmates, you have people in this large building, what is effectively a giant hotel you're living in on campus. Are you going to fly halfway across the country to go back home and quarantine? I don't think that is necessarily pragmatically, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And while, you know, there's no guarantee that you will absolutely not get the virus, as much as we can mitigate people on campuses getting the virus, the better it's going to be, especially in those situations when you, you just don't have anywhere to go to quarantine. I will build off of uh, Marcelo's idea that you've got people coming in from uh, not only all over the country, but potentially all over the world if you have a university with an exchange program. And I'll also build off of Josh uh, and his point about the amount of resources that it takes. I'll speak for myself and a good portion of the grad students especially, we're tired of learning online. I think that's a pretty general blanket statement. There are a few individuals who do prefer learning online, but by and large, there's a consensus that we're tired of learning online. We're tired of being isolated. The fun of grad school is your cohort. It's doing things with other people. It's the conferences, the presentations, the networking. We don't, uh, uh, for myself and probably for most grad students, I would say the fun is not research inherently. It is not school inherently. Those are fun. Those are fine. We like the people aspect and we don't get that when we keep having to isolate. Teaching is a pain when you have to do it through a mask because it's difficult to get students to be able to hear and understand you. If you teach like me and you prefer people to be able to do interactive experiences and not just lecture because that's boring. You can't do that when people have to distance themselves. So I think that the vaccine for something that's an elective like this is definitely a good thing, particularly if it's mandated from the university. 
I have a small point of like um, for I think universities, there is a I think it's an element of academic integrity. If we go and ask the immunologists, the virologists, epidemiologists who work and teach those classes at our university, they tell us this is a good idea. This is what we need to be doing. This is we go ask the people who study public health, our public administration experts who are faculty members who we trust to teach the next generation. And as a university, they're the experts. We need to act like and remember expertise matters. And this is what we're kind of built on. So we need to trust and listen to those people and respect their academic work. And same as we expect theirs to respect us over in communication, sociology and history and English. So yeah, trust the scientists that are on our staff and faculty with us. I think that's a good transition over to our initial thoughts on this. We've talked about the general overview. Now we'll get into some of the pros and cons that we think are going on here. As we do that, I, I think I can summarize everything that's been said and what we will say in our opinions vary based off of the level of implementation, particularly for myself. I think that I change my opinion based off of who has the power and where is this coming from and what is the way that this is being implemented. So Marcella, you want to kick us off with just your initial thoughts, pick from anywhere on there you want to. I agree. And, you know, I, I could save this for later, but I'll say it now is that I wouldn't be so strongly. It's It feels weird to say in favor of the vaccines, in favor of a vaccine, but I wouldn't be so strongly in favor of like the vaccine passport idea if it, if it was in the U.S. So I feel like the U.S. has had such an overwhelming quantity and access of, and, and access of the vaccines compared to any other country in the world that it is baffling to me that we're still talking about this. If it was anywhere else, I feel like I would try to think of more of like, okay, well, what about the access? What about, you know, the possibilities of getting the vaccine and everything? But here, from what I've seen, it has been so comparatively easier to get the vaccine and and you you see the you know the proof is in the pudding we we know what happens when we don't get the vaccine um that i just again again because it's here i I am so strongly in favor of it anywhere a vaccine passport makes sense i want it again like you said i think it really does come down to the level of implementation and from where i'm sitting and from you know what i've seen just kind of across the board as far as policies go just in general as far as politics goes it seems that the further away from the people the power gets the less nuances enabled um, the less smaller factors are considered again one of the things i mentioned earlier i think there's something to be said for people who can't get the vaccine josh has an excellent point and i think that was great the more people that are protected from the disease the less of it will hopefully be in circulation just statistically the less people who are immunocompromised would be exposed to people who have the virus great i think large sweeping legislation from a centralized source of power is going to would cause more issues than it may prevent and that it would not allow for nuance to be done in some of these plans and rollouts. I think some people might end up being excluded or disenfranchised by some of these things. So it's just something to be cautious about thinking about these issues. I'm always at that line of like, how much do I want to legitimately argue with things based and unreality and like unscientific, you know, procedure and conspiracy? Because in part of it, like treating it as an equal argument, treating it as on equal footing is a little disingenuous because it's not. One of these things is heavily researched by thousands of scientists around the world in peer-reviewed papers papers and has been looked over and looked over and looked over and looked over all on board with it. And someone here is on like freedom.net telling you about all of the side effects and how many people are dying. And I'm sorry, those two pieces of information aren't legitimate or are equally legitimate. Like there's a weighting system that goes into the quality of value laden information and what gets produced. And so uh, part of me always wants to be a little like dismissive towards some of like the hesitancy because like the ideas 
ideas that are built around it are largely built on nothing. They're largely built on, you know, fear and propaganda and not listening to just good procedural science. And so part of me wants to say like the a little bit of the heavy handedness from our governments is like kind of reaffirming expertise in a sense of like a large part of these people's criticism is on the idea of expertise and I don't think we have just to tolerate that at times. I think we can just look at them and go, no, your information's wrong. This isn't like proper procedure. And it's not going to be weighted as equally as, you know, research and verified and peer reviewed information. I think uh, I'll agree with you, Josh, that not all information is the same, nor should it be weighted the same. You need to consider your source. I think one danger that comes down to the other side of that, though, is that assuming that the science is the same as implementation and policy, because technically science doesn't tell us anything as far as the mandates go. You interpret the science and that's where it comes from. The science is the actual data. It is the information that is collected. If I'm writing a research paper, the science in that is going to be, who did I sample? What does the stats say? And then everything from my explanation of those stats to what I recommend going forward from there is based off of my expertise. And sure, it's going to, as it should, hold significantly more weight than an individual who's not well-versed. However, it is still my opinion and my interpretation of that. And that's where we see different disagreements on what is the best course of action. The science in this case is going to be what are the infection rates? How transmissible is this? Where is specific policy working and where is it not? And the vaccine has been a miracle pill. Uh, It's been a silver bullet for reducing this. That is indisputable. What I think is still up for debate is what is the best course of policy action? I think there's better. I think there's worse based off of expertise. Yeah, of course. We, the science is out there. We know the science and, and we know what works and what doesn't. I will, again, just express my frustration at the, the amount of politicizing that has been happening around the vaccine. Is that, you know, like, oh, you know, if you like the vaccine, you're like, you know, a commie who like wants to infect everyone. And if you don't like the vaccine, then, well, yeah, you know, like you hate science or whatever. But I agree with the, the second take. Um, I, I feel like there is a lot to do from a policy perspective that can be done and, and has been shown to be effective that at certain points we do have to i'm going to say it we do have to force on people to like say like hey you know like we know this vaccine works because you know looking at historical perspective this has happened before with other diseases and we stop them by making people get the cure and that's how it worked i don't think anybody in in today's day and age would be against a, a polio vaccine if polio came back As far as I'm aware, from a scientific perspective, there are a multitude of opinions on whether or not we can truly eliminate COVID or whether or not it will become an endemic virus, somewhat like the flu, and it'll just kind of merge with flu season. And we're just kind of stuck with an attenuated version of that. The good news is, if you think about it from a logical perspective, from typical virology perspectives, the viruses have it in, quote unquote, to uh, anthropomorphize them. It's in their best interest to become less deadly over time, which is very good. The more that a virus, like the less hosts that it kills, the more it's able to spread around. That's what a virus wants to do. It wants to spread around, so so to speak. Hopefully through the next, you know, the course of the next year, if it proves that COVID is able to sequester in animal reservoirs, meaning that animals are able to transmit the disease, we'll never be able to truly get rid of it. But in a human population, it will continue to diminish in lethality to the point that it will just kind of go in with a typical flu season. It'll just be part of the thing. What comes with that is booster shots. Like we've been seeing, there's been calls for a third booster shot to be approved for the vaccine as COVID you know, continues to evolve and change. As that goes on, people don't need to be alarmed so much about there being a multitude of boosters. Just keep in mind that we may see some things change over the next few months, talk to your doctor. Your doctor knows what's best for you. Um, They'll have good information. If they're a good doctor, they'll be informed and you'll be able to have a great conversation with them about COVID and the direction it's going. 
I'd say the disadvantages for like immunocompromised people having to get tested weekly. That's that's gonna that's gonna that's not great. That's not fun. It's not a fun test. That's inconvenient. Not many people have something that like they have to go check in and weekly do. But that's why I think part of some of why we want to make sure we do as much to get as much outreach and get as much as we can to get people on board and you know, provide them the resources to get the vaccine is so we can stop practices like that. Or, you know, we can move beyond having to make, you know, kind of every social policy aware of like this deadly virus that people might happen to. I do think there's obviously a lot of like weird concerns about it when people like, you know, it's a HIPAA violation. Uh, If you ask me this, no, it's not. HIPAA violation means your doctor can't tell on you. It means like, just like your therapist can't leak confidential information. Your doctor can't leak um, confidential information. Educators have in the higher education have the same thing. Um, it's called FERPA. We can't leak your grades. We can't leak our rosters. Can't leak your assignments. Like we keep your records confidential. That does not mean some stranger can't come up to you and ask you a question. Like that's never going to be illegal in America. You can go ask anyone anything. The worst thing that's going to happen to you is going to get told that's classified. That's it. That's the only consequence for asking questions in America. Delightfully, it's a fairly free country. Uh, With that in mind, there are certain restrictions that are placed for both FERPA and HIPAA. So, for example, if a student comes to me as an instructor and they say that they have such and such disability thing, I'm not allowed to ask them what that disability is. And I am required, based off of the recommendation of their consultation with the uh, disability services, that then they send me a recommendation on what the student should be accommodated for. I have to comply with that. The same is true for HIPAA. And that's why a business is not allowed to ask you um, about different statuses. So there was this did lead to some frustration when it came to the fact that masks were not able to be required and a business couldn't ask you whether or not you were vaccinated or what what your disability was that prevented you from being able to wear a mask. And I think that that leads to an important point that there will always be people who slip through the cracks. I think that the laws that should take place should try to mitigate that as much as possible while still protecting legitimately disadvantaged citizens, whether they be students, whether they be health patients, either before or against vaccine passports, depending on the level at which they're implemented and the amount of nuance that can take place. I think to be noted with the FERPA and uh, HIPAA, you can't ask these certain questions. It's cer- particular people can't ask certain questions. It's basically like, it's not the professor's problem. Um, here's what the experts are telling you to do. Um, you just need to work. Those experts over in that office are asking questions and getting paperwork from doctors and verifying all of that. So that's why I say like, you know, we can prod and poke, just need to, and I think that even goes down to, you know, kind of Ryan's point of implementation. Like there are, you know, appropriate, you know, people to prod and poke in certain offices and certain professionals to do so because, you know, as a professor, it really doesn't matter um, what accommodations your student needs. It's your job to make an accommodating and welcoming classroom. So there's always that delegation and, you know, sectioning of work and who does what. Okay, uh, because I keep forgetting to do this, we do have some special announcements coming up. So stay tuned in the next couple of weeks. We have some things that we'll be planning to roll out and I'll leave it very vague on purpose to hopefully pique interest or turn people away entirely. I don't really care, but that's where we're at right now. All right, we will be right back with our hot takes. All right, here's my vaccine hot take. I saw an excellent policy proposal by Dr. Fauci, and he said he wanted to prevent the next epidemic before it happened. And that meant looking at what are the most probable uh, viruses that are going to spread. Um, basically, what we, you know, what are we most concerned about? What are our current epidemiologists watching and tracking? And go ahead and develop, you know, close vaccines for it. Part of the reason we're able to get the um, COVID-19 vaccine ready so quickly is because we had started working with the mRNA technology on 
a SARS vaccine or SARS vaccine that happened back in the early 2000s to deal with SARS and MERS and, and uh, MERS. Like we had viruses like this virus and we we're working to, you know, try to combat them. We didn't end up needing those vaccines because as Austin talked about earlier, vax, you know, a good virus actually doesn't kill its host and SARS was way too deadly to spread um, too heavily. But if we have a vaccine on day one of the epidemic and it is 60% effective, that's incredible. And earnestly, that also means a lot of the early work and what we need to be doing has already been done. So scientists have a lot less, you know, time, or a lot less of a hard time figuring out what, you know, precisely needs to be tailored um, for this particular vaccine. Um, the mRNA technology is incredibly exciting. We'll see some wonderful vaccines start coming out for that. We are, uh, Moderna is actually going to start um, tri human trialing their HIV vaccine later this year. So a lot of things that we thought were once undefeatable, things we couldn't get away from and illnesses we thought were unavoidable. This new technology is going to provide us a way to have a much healthier humanity um, in the future. So that's why I thought Fauci's idea of like, how do we plan out? Let's go ahead and preemptively develop, you know, these vaccines because in earnestly, these mRNA vaccines have a lot less side effects than these uh, traditional vaccines doing and they're available to a lot more people with um, some like a lot less allergen restrictions. So I'm excited for what this new technology will bring and how it will help us avoid a lot more um, avoidable death in the future. All right. For my uh, vaccine hot take, no, with the vaccine, you do have some options. I know there's been a lot of talk with extremely exciting mRNA technology, as Josh mentioned in his hot take. Pfizer and Moderna both work on those platforms. And basically, it's a plug in place for option where we have a specific kind of you have a frame to throw the genetic information you want in, plug in the information from the virus, and your body is able to make a specific immune response based on that information that was plugged into the frame, so to speak. Extremely exciting, extremely quick. Um, again, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, as far as I'm aware, is more of a traditional uh, vaccine where you have an attenuated version of the virus, a weakened, sickened version of the virus itself is put into you. Your body is able to recognize that and do a preemptive immune response before you get sick. mRNA vaccine technology is incredibly exciting. And I think over the next few years, we're going to see a lot of quickly rolled out vaccines because, you know, we're able to see sequence incredibly quickly. Again, we have gene sequencing technology that has advanced in the past few years incredibly quickly, which is great. So we're going to have a lot of those plug and play options with future diseases, which is going to be good for the future of public health. I think it's a great thing. Um, with all that being said, Josh brought up an earlier point as far as not all information is created equal in the sense that there are good sources of information and bad sources of information. You should not be getting your medical advice from Twitter. You should not be getting your medical advice from freedom.net. You should not be getting your medical advice from the magic TV box. Believe it or not, the people on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, they may have good experts on that would have great information to share with you. But if you're going to take those collective informations and make a plan for yourself, not the smartest thing you could do. Um, the safest bet is to talk to your doctor. Your doctor knows your medical history. Your doctor knows you personally. And with the model of medicine that we have here, it is very quote unquote customer centric in the sense that you and your doctor are supposed to develop this trust relationship where you can speak about your medical issues. He or she knows exactly what you need. So you need to have those conversations. If you have any hesitancy about the vaccine or any questions about COVID in general, your doctor should be able to give you a little bit more information on that. Please talk to them about it and um, we'll see where things go from there. That's so crazy. Uh, scientists advocating for, to, for science and listen to the scientists. That's I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. In all honesty, uh, my, my true hot take is that I hope this doesn't become a pattern. Years ago, and, and I'm extrapolating here, but, but years ago, uh, flat earthers were like a fringe group that I thought they were a fringe group and like um, other anti-science and other like, you know, they call them themselves skeptics, but you know, some things 
you can just trust the science from from my the, the perspective of someone who is not a scientist i guess i trust the science and i hope that you know josh and austin talk about these really good news about future vaccines coming into play and i just hope then whenever these new vaccines come out people are not like well i don't want to take that one either i really hope that this, this doesn't become a pattern where like more and more people are against the idea of vaccines or the, the vaccines themselves and they set on set out on this crusade to project anything that has to do with them because that that would be in fjords bad all right i'm going to kick off my hot take by saying that there are legitimate reasons to not get the vaccine but i'm going to tie that into josh and austin's points that those reasons do not come from twitter they do not come from the news they come from legitimate medical things that have been diagnosed by a doctor for example if you have ms if you are prone to seizures right now this is not the thing for you and i think that carving out that protection based off of actual other science data that comes in such as your medical history that's scientific meaning we need to carve out these protections and I would add to that that mandates without options are discriminatory and authoritarian. If these restaurants that are toying around with the idea of not allowing anyone in regardless of reasoning for not getting the vaccine with no nuance or businesses that are not allowing people to work based off of that, uh, that is both authoritarian because they're forcing down a one size fits all on all of their employees and or customers. And it also doesn't allow for the disabled who are then at that point being discriminated against because of these mandates. Regardless Regardless of your reasoning for discriminating in that instance, it's not good. If you're a business that has these concerns, but you're allowing them in if they have uh, a mask or if they uh, have a negative COVID test, then I would say that, you know, we're moving in the right direction. I would also say don't confuse transmissibility with deadliness. The fact that the Delta variant is more transmissible does not necessarily mean that we need to be going into the same amount of lockdowns because the deadliness ratio has not gone up. By definition, a variant is going to be less deadly. Still a concern. When it's approved, get your booster shot, but don't get your fear from <laughs> the magic box. And then lastly, my support of passports is going to vary from level to level. I'm going to be highly skeptical of severe mandates coming from top-down federal level. But when we look at the nuance that's provided from businesses or from your local governments, I'm going to be a little bit more okay with that. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Goodbye for now. 